You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 10th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As our regular listeners will no doubt be aware, we've been increasingly focusing on educational content in this show, such as our new mini-series on the Energy Basics, which we rolled out in episode 119, and to which we'll be adding more episodes very soon. You may also recall our conversations with professors from four different universities in episode 100, in which we talked about how they're using the Energy Transition Show as coursework, because there is clearly a need for teaching materials for teaching energy transition to a broader set of students, especially those who may not be pursuing engineering and science degrees. Until recently, energy was only really taught to engineering students, and most liberal arts students could earn a degree without learning anything about energy, not even something as basic as knowing what a kilowatt hour is. But now, with climate change as the foremost existential challenge to humanity, there are many more students from non-engineering disciplines who need to learn something about energy in order to help them be more effective in their work on energy policy, law, environmental science, social justice, business and project finance, and the many other careers that are now, in one way or another, a part of the project of energy transition. So today I'm very pleased to bring one of those professors back to the program to talk about his new textbook. Dustin Mulvaney is a professor at San Jose State University in California, where he teaches a broad range of undergraduates about energy, and he has a new textbook coming out titled Sustainable Energy Strategies, Socio-Ecological Dimensions of Decarbonization. It's a very ambitious effort to survey many of the complex topics that are critical for people involved in energy transition to understand. It will be released soon in digital format and in print in September, but it's available for pre-ordering now at the links in the show notes of this episode. So if you've been looking for a big picture perspective on energy transition and some ideas on how to teach it, look no further than this episode. And speaking of teaching energy transition, I'd like to offer a warm welcome to our latest site licensee, South Africa's Stellenbosch University. It is the oldest university in South Africa and a highly rated public research university, so I'm very pleased that all of their faculty, staff, and students can now access our complete catalog of full shows for their research on energy transition. Welcome all. And in the news segment of this episode, we'll hear what some of the oil supermajors are saying about the possibility that world has passed peak oil demand. We'll explore an ambitious new plan to make parts of central London car-free. We'll review a new report on how the Rockefeller Brothers Fund is doing since it began divesting from fossil fuels. And we'll take a look at several exciting new hybrid power plants with integrated storage. And now, our conversation with Dustin Mulvaney, recorded May 7th, 2020. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Dustin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris, for having me again. 
You know, the first time we had you on the show, back in episode 100, you were there to talk about how you've used the podcast as coursework in your teaching on energy at San Jose State University. Since then, you've published a book titled Solar Power, in which you address some of the sustainability issues around the manufacturing and disposal of materials used in making solar power systems. And today we're going to talk about your new book titled Sustainable Energy Transitions, Socio-Ecological Dimensions of Decarbonization, which has just been published by Palgrave Macmillan, which I think makes you only the second guest we've had who's actually written a textbook on energy transition. The first being Dave Murphy, another of our guests from episode 100 who published his online textbook, Renewable Energy in the 21st Century, last year. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have you back on the show to talk about it because I think we've all recognized that there really has been a dearth of suitable textbooks on energy transition. And it's maybe even more important that we have such textbooks now with higher ed trying to figure out, you know, what kind of a future it even has after the coronavirus and more students needing to learn from home. So maybe we can just start with that. What made you decide to write this book? Well, there's a practical reason, which is I teach three classes at San Jose State, Energy and the Environment, Solar Energy Analysis, and Sustainable Energy Strategies. And I needed a book that fit those courses. I was not able to find the book that I was looking for out there just yet because my students are coming from environmental studies, which brings a different set of backgrounds to the conversation than you might see in a typical energy textbook. There's a tendency for the textbooks to be very engineering and economics and policy heavy. And I'd argue that a lot of the social sciences are actually missing from a lot of those textbooks. And as we know, energy transitions are fundamentally, I believe, social changes. And those social changes do have a technical dimension to it. But the textbooks tend to treat energy transitions as a technical issue. And my goal here was to offer up a textbook that could appeal Two people who are starting in engineering, I get green engineering students in my class, but also business. I get a lot of business students in my class, anthropology, sociology. So by having some of that content in the textbook, it gives students coming from different backgrounds an anchor to then kind of move the conversation forward a little bit more. So that was my real interest here was to put together a textbook for practical reasons that I could use in the classroom, but also one that engaged with kind of the social dynamics which are underlying a lot of what happens. And that means political economy, behavior, social movement theory, trying to understand how movements change certain things in society. Like right now we have a big climate movement trying to change our energy system away from fossil fuels. So that's kind of the main motivation for the textbook. Gotcha. You know, before we go on and talk about the book, I feel like we should explore your background a little bit. Like what is it about your training and experience that puts you in a position to write a book about energy transition? I went to school for chemical engineering. And in some ways, having a chemical engineering degree made me really well prepared to doing life cycle assessment and things like that, because that's the basis of that discipline in some ways. In some ways, life cycle assessment is is easier than chemical engineering. You don't have to worry about heat transfer and kinetics and things like that. I have a minor also in applied physics. It was actually a starting program at the New Jersey Institute of Technology 
on optical science and engineering that eventually became the name of that degree program. I worked in the chemical industry for a couple of years. My first job was at a chemical plant in New Jersey, and it was the last part of a much larger industrial operation with a 90-year-old steam house. And it was like the last plant that was functioning there. And I was there when they shut down that plant and then moved with the plant expansion to West Virginia, where I lived for a little while working as a process engineer, expanding surfactant production, which is what we were making. And it was that time where I I lived about a mile away from a coal-fired power plant, the Pleasance Power Station. And through my living in West Virginia, I learned that that was the site of the largest construction accident in U.S. history. 50-something people died climbing up a cooling tower that was not quite cured, and it fell down and collapsed. So I started to see how energy systems were impacting communities. I would spend my weekends, I like the outdoors, so I would spend a lot of time in the mountains of West Virginia, and you see the coal communities alongside the poverty there. So that really piqued my interest in wanting to work on energy issues. I went back to graduate school for a master's degree. I worked with David Rothenberg and Eric Katz, who are two environmental philosophers. Eric Katz founded the journal Environmental Ethics in the late 1970s, and David Rothenberg translated Arnie Ness's Deep Ecology into English for the first time. So I had a lot of good exposure to kind of the environmental humanities through them. And then finally, I did a PhD in environmental studies where I was able to bring together a social science training in political economy and science and technology studies to understand how technology systems in general change. I didn't actually focus on energy for my dissertation, and that came more with my, my postdoc, where I received some money to look at how metrics were being used to measure the performance of renewable energy technology. Hmm. So if you could think about it, I kind of cover a couple different domains. I got a little background in engineering. I have a humanities master's degree, environmental ethics, and then a social science, more interdisciplinary training in my PhD program. So master of many trades, maybe not a specialist in too, too many of them, although I feel like I understand the solar industry quite well. Yeah, well, that background in chemistry is probably helpful there. All right, well, let's dive in on the book because there's just so much to talk about in it. And I think for convenience, I'd just like to walk through it chapter by chapter since you've done such a nice job of structuring it. So to begin with, I was pleasantly surprised to see that you actually opened up with a chapter on many of the energy transitions that have occurred in the past and a survey of the various schools of thought that have been influential in energy transitions, both in the past and in the present. For example, there are those who have advocated for increasing humanity's use of energy in order to promote better human welfare across all socioeconomic classes. And then there's a different school of thought who have advocated for reducing the amount of energy that we each consume by pursuing efficiency and renewable power in order to find more sustainable pathways forward. And then there are those who advocate degrowth or various ways of deliberately shrinking human populations and their resource demands and replacing our economic system, which depends on constant growth, with something else. So very different schools of thought have come into play here in energy transition in the past. Why do you think it's important to understand all these different perspectives up front? Like, why did you start your book with that? And although I realize it isn't really a fair question to ask because it's such a complex and sprawling topic, could you try to briefly summarize all these perspectives for our listeners? 
Yeah, no problem. The purpose of this opening chapter is to give students an idea that there are things at stake here in the energy transition debate. And I try to frame it in such a way that we don't necessarily know which ones of these patterns or these debates are the pathway that we need to pursue, but they should be very aware of them. So for example, one of these axes in the debates about energy transition is around renewable versus clean energy. Clean energy, including things like carbon capture and nuclear power, maybe even some low carbon natural gas versus renewable energy, which of course we know are constantly replenishing flows of energy, wind, solar, geothermal. And we see these debates play out in the real world every day almost, where these states want to get 100% renewables and as certain utilities want to protect their maybe aging nuclear power fleets. These are debates that have actual consequences. And another example would be How do we incentivize the change? You have markets on one side. We need to address the externalities of energy production by establishing markets and pollution permits and things like that. Or command and control. We need to empower our regulators to say, you need to reduce here, you need to reduce there. Now, the reality is places are different everywhere. And command and control is going to work in some places. And Markets are going to work in other places. And I think that recognizing that the people that are promoting these policies are actually situated in different places. I mean, think Texas versus California in terms of the differences in how they think about the state and the role of the state in intervening in things. Very, very different cultures. You could see perhaps different pathways for each state, per se, on that question of command and control versus markets. Another is democratic versus technocratic. So this is something that the philosopher Dewey mentioned almost a century ago, that as our democracies start to have more information from science and technologies informing policies and things like that, there is this tension between technocracy, right, rule by experts, versus democracy. You know, everybody should get a say. And I think that these are things that are also playing out Every day, today, you know, we have people that are empowered as technocrats to make certain decisions in certain places. And we have different parts of the country where making people's voices heard is very, very important. So take, for example, California's intervener program where experts are allowed to weigh in on public policies affecting energy at the California Public Utilities Commission. That is kind of a more democratic approach to thinking about questions about energy, or it's more open at least, than decisions that are made in different utilities in different states. Mm -hmm. Another example, local versus global. Another example, decentralized versus centralized. And this is a big question because we see this all the time playing out with net metering debates and resilience questions. Is it okay to have big power plants pushing power down to households and such, or should we have a more dynamic grid that is more decentralized and able to kind of more locally self-generate when possible. Of course, the reality here, again, is going to be a combination of these things. But it matters which composition it has. And I think that that's something else I'm trying to tease out here. Public versus private, 
is another question, right? We often hear that with utility regulations. Should utilities be publicly owned? Should they be privately owned? The message from what we know is that's a mixed question. There's really no ideological solution there. A public electric utility isn't necessarily more democratic than a private one. But these are important questions. Yeah. The basic idea is to understand that there are kind of extreme positions in these debates and that there are stakes and that there are people that are tying themselves to these positions in some ways. Yeah, exactly. Let me just add one more thing about chapter one. I was able to, in a last edit, get in a little box on COVID-19, which I think will be good for students to be thinking about. I mean, there's all this information about disruption right now, supply chains, power systems, transportation investments, all these things are kind of in flux. And I think that this gives an opportunity for students to really see this playing out in action. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you were reminding me as you were speaking there of a couple of our previous episodes, like technocracy for one thing. M. King Hubbard was famously a technocrat. We covered him in episode 13. And as far as the democratizing role of allowing interveners in utility rate cases before regulators and actually paying interveners for doing serious work in support of those proceedings is something that we discussed with Leah Stokes in our episode with her in episode 121, which was... uh, Brilliant stuff. I haven't read her book yet. I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, it's really interesting. All right. Well, You go on to give a brief overview of some of the fundamentals of energy, such as the laws of thermodynamics in Chapter 2, the different kinds of energy, and the differences between power and energy. Those are topics we covered in the first three mini-episodes of our new mini-series on the energy basics, which we launched in Episode 119. So I know how challenging it can be to really start at the beginning with this material and (laughs) try to get it across quickly and efficiently, like what is energy? Do you find that your students really need this kind of primer material? I have a lot of students who have not had physics yeah. coming in sometimes, so they absolutely need this material. Never heard of the laws of thermodynamics. Yeah, some of them remember it from high school, of course. It's in high school. It's in grammar school. These are things that we teach over and over again that they're a little harder to kind of keep at the front of the brain, I think, for students. So they definitely need these things. And I love the mini-episodes They are really effective at communicating, I think, and I'm definitely going to use those. Great. It's very difficult for students still to get power and energy. It just is. It's not something that like we've accomplished and like, hey, we fixed it. Everybody understands it now. It's just, it's going to be a persistent problem. And of course, it's because of the way we name things, right? (laughs) The kilowatt hour has no time dimension. (laughs) Why do we call it a kilowatt hour? Of course, it's to get the units to cancel. I try to explain that to my students a little bit, but like it's very hard to memorize that a watt is a joule per second. Yeah. Very simple things, but you know, that's why we have all this up front to try to at least give people a common language for talking about the physical basis for why we have to make this transition. Especially when you've got students that are coming from maybe from the humanities or from more of a policy orientation than a science, technology, engineering, and math orientation. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why in the class that I intend to use this book first is my sustainable energy strategies class. And that class is very project oriented. So it's part of my task in the class to build project teams of students who have kind of a combination of backgrounds. So that at least they're kind of 
cross-pollinating a little bit and getting themselves a little sharper. And being able to talk to people across disciplines, I think, is also a skill that a lot of people, it's hard to get. Yeah, I remember talking about that in episode 100. I thought it was a clever way of structuring things. Well, in chapter three of your book, you start getting into the relationships between energy and the social sciences, which I think is incredibly important, especially for students who are not taking an engineering track and who might be more interested in the political, economic, social justice, and environmental justice aspects of energy transition. And there are a lot more of these people now as we all start to really grapple with the wicked problem of climate change than there were, for example, when you and I were university students, aren't there? I mean, when we were in school, very few people were interested in these subjects from a social science angle. So why do you think it's important to teach the social aspect of energy transition? I'm going to start this off with a funny story. When I was a chemical engineering senior, I remember going to one of our seminars where it was about offshore oil drilling off the coast of Angola. And it was just talking about the technical challenges, was not talking about any social anything. And I had been very well aware of what was happening in Nigeria with Shell and things like that. And I remember going to like an open house with the professors in our chemical engineering degree program and saying, I want us to be engaged with the communities and understanding like what are the social impacts of these decisions? This is not distinct from the impacts that we would see on communities. It's something that we we have to engage with. We can't pretend it's not there. So my interest in bringing the social sciences, again, was because the textbooks tend to be like, here's the policies then to match what we're saying from the technical aspects. Or here's the economic reason that this would happen. When we know that there's a lot of people who've been studying social change, social resistance, I think that the most clear place that we see a lack of social science training in energy conversations today is around the use of the word NIMBY. Now, people have been studying wind farm siting for 30 years. Social scientists, they have a vocabulary for talking about it. They have hypotheses. And almost across the board, they all say that the notion of NIMBY is incorrect. It does not explain social resistance. Yet, when we hear people talking about transmission projects or solar projects, we often hear it's the NIMBYs that are stopping the projects, when in fact there are other reasons. The context matters, for example, where the project's being cited. The process, here's another place where we don't see engagement with the social sciences. Social sciences have been saying for 30 years, one of the reasons we have social resistance to infrastructure projects in general is the process. The way we propose projects under the system is decide, announce, defend. Meaning you've picked the site project, the place where the project's going to be. You then announce it to the public, and then you're just kind of fighting off criticisms. When the social sciences have showed that early public participation, reaching out to stakeholders early on, all these things can have huge impacts on whether or not that project is accepted by the local communities. So if this book does anything else but complexify the NIMBY phenomena, I'm not denying social resistance to these projects occurs, but the question is, what is the mechanism Hmm. that's driving this? What are the hypotheses? And there are occasionally NIMBY people. It's not the preponderance of the people that are opposed to projects. So that's an area where... I hope more people who are interested in communities' responses to renewable energy projects would engage in this literature. The literature is called The Social Gap in Renewable Energy. They're trying to measure the gap between 
if we poll everybody, even Republicans love renewable energy. Not as much, but everybody likes renewable energy. But when it comes to citing particular projects, it becomes very difficult once they hit the ground. So the gap is between those who publicly support in general renewables and those who don't support specific projects. And the question is, what explains that social gap? Hmm. And public participation is a major one. Context, as I said earlier, is another one. They call it the democratic deficit hypothesis. You know, they didn't ask anybody. I mean, I remember interviewing people in my own research where I was like, how did you find out about this 5,000 acre solar farm? And they said, oh, the installer who was putting my solar panels on my roof said, hey, do you know that there's going to be 5,000 acre solar farm across the street from your house in that meadow? And that is a recipe for sparking more resistance or getting people to dig their heels in more. Yeah. And of course, you're going to get people who don't want projects anyway. But I think an engagement with the people that have been studying this for a long time could actually go a long way. Yeah, it certainly could. Although it's by no means guaranteed that even with good outreach and good stakeholder engagement that you're going to get the result that you were aiming for. That's accurate. But I think there's empirical evidence in that literature that shows that you could make projects move smoother and faster if you do those engagements. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's going to be people who don't want the project no matter what. And that's something that I don't know how to deal with that. But the question is, are we accurately describing the phenomena? If someone started talking about power and started using energy, we'd flip out on them. Mm -hmm. And here, this is why I'm saying, like, we have to strengthen our social science languages to talk about hypotheses and mechanisms that the social scientists have found. Because to me, when I hear people say NIMBY, that's like people misusing power and energy from the social sciences perspective. So I think it's really important for people to engage. Now, if they engage with the literature and they find problems with the methods and all that stuff, well, that's the point to engage with. But right now I only see dismissal yeah, or not engagement at all. You're causing me to flash back here on to our conversation with Russell Gold in episode 98 about his his book, Superpower, on the challenges that Michael Skelly and his team had in building transmission projects across the country. They really went out of their way to engage with all of these local communities that would be affected by the construction of these transmission lines. They had like dozens or maybe even hundreds of one-on-one sort of town hall meetings with locals to get their interest in these projects or to at least get them to not oppose them. Right. And that all went well until politics intervened at the highest levels, senators right. and so on. So yeah, then there's another whole dimension of political science there that comes into play. Absolutely. And I think Russell did a great telling of that story. I think it's really important. The question is, is that the norm? And I would argue that in the time that I've been studying building energy infrastructure in over 15 years or so, I mean, they built a transmission line from urban San Diego through Anza Borrego State Park and connected it to the Salton Sea area. That didn't really face the opposition that you would expect for something through a state park. So I think it's an empirical question. To what extent is the phenomena that Russell captures in his book accurate for across the country? And there's certainly projects. I've read about them. But there's not an overwhelming number. And if we look at like solar and wind projects, it's even fewer that I've seen evidence for. I mean, I, I looked at on public lands across the American West, 171 projects seeking permits over one square mile on public lands. Five of them were rejected. Hmm. So... 
the concern I have is that the concern about social resistance leads to people saying, oh, we need to reform the National Environmental Policy Act. And I don't know if there's empirical evidence that the National Environmental Policy Act is what's holding up these projects. I don't think it was in the case of the book that Russell wrote. So I think it's an important empirical question. And and just to on, on the five projects that were denied of the 171 over a square mile seeking permits on public lands across the American West, two of those projects are currently in the new national monument. So there were obviously ecological issues there. And three of the other ones were Sterling engines. So hopefully someone saw the writing on the wall for Sterling engines, and that was the reason. But every real project, every ARA project, for example, every project passed went through NEPA. Mm-hmm. They fast-tracked about three times as many projects as were actually built. And those projects didn't get caught up in regulatory problems. They basically ran out of money or they had technology issues. Yeah. So I think that the question is, there's a couple layers here. How do we get communities to support infrastructure projects in general? I think that that's really important. And for us to engage with that, we need to understand why people are resistant and what regulatory things might be holding these projects back. And I don't think the National Environmental Policy Act is the holdup. Yeah, so you referred a moment ago to NEPA, so that's what that is, the Environmental Policy Act. In other words, the need for a project to go through an environmental impact review before it goes ahead. And why don't you just briefly describe what a Stirling engine is for those who aren't familiar? So the Stirling engine, it looks like a dish, basically. It looks like a satellite dish. And it's called an external heat engine. Basically, it uses that mirror to focus heat on a central point. And that central point is able to either pressurize or move a piston back and forth and generate electricity. There's a couple different designs. So it's a form of concentrating solar power. Yeah, it's a very unique kind of concentrate CSP for sure. Yep. Except it doesn't generate steam. So most CSP generates steam. This generates electricity directly. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to chapter four, because you started getting into the dirty details of fossil fuels there and how we use them. And I'm glad that you do, because I've observed that many courses on sustainability, especially those that are not part of an engineering track or that are focused on the renewable aspects of energy transition or the soft sciences, tend not to really get into the fossil fuels much. And I think that's a shame and a terrible omission, because you can't really understand the economics, for example, of a wind or a solar plant without understanding the economics of the natural gas or the coal-fired plants that they'll compete against. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. We need to understand these systems because some of these systems might be with us still to some extent. Yeah. I mean, the natural gas question, I think, is a huge one. And like, I try to leave my students with as much room to think about that as they can. I don't give them any opinions on it, but it's an important tension, I think, in this space. The natural gas, water use for hydraulic fracking is an issue, but we have intermittency issues. We have biogas. We have a pipeline infrastructure. How do we utilize that in the future? Is there enough biogas to even make a dent in the carbon intensity of natural gas? So these are really important because in some ways, I think a lot of these fossil fuels might end up being somewhat blends. So understanding the chemistry and understanding some of the physical aspects, I think, are really critical, as well as the pollution and the impacts from that, because that's part of the other motivation for this book and why it's called Socio-Ecological Dimensions of Decarbonization. It's because, again, there's a tendency 
to reduce our energy transition problem to a problem of decarbonization, which obviously we need to do, but sometimes other environmental impacts fall away. Eutrophication, mercury pollution, heavy metals, all these things that are also important to put into the basket of considerations when we talk about impacts and, and potential benefits. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to chapter five, where you explore all the clean alternatives, including nuclear power, wind, solar, hydro, bioenergy, geothermal, and all the various marine energy solutions. And I thought I was actually quite pleased that you made the effort to discuss wave power, tidal power, and ocean thermal power individually, because they really are mostly pre-commercial technologies yet, but they're all very different. I mean, I think just that whole sector of marine power still has yet to get into that world of commercial reality. But there's an awful lot of material on all of these different technologies in this one chapter. I mean, <laughs> I really kind of wonder how you even managed, and I wonder how many students can really absorb it all. So what do you hope that they will take away from this overview of all the clean energy solutions? I want them to be thinking about renewable energy not as a panacea, but as something that we're going to have to manage the impacts of as we deploy. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Many observers have been wondering if global oil demand has peaked thanks to the impact of the coronavirus shutdown. Regular listeners will remember that we discussed the many sides of that picture in our conversation with Liam Denning in episode 120. But a few weeks after we launched that show, the CEO of BP, Bernard Looney, said that he would not rule out the possibility that the peak in demand is in fact behind us, and that he had a personal conviction that BP must invest more in renewables now, particularly as renewable projects have been able to attract funding. 
BP, whose revenues are mainly driven by oil, reported a 66% drop in earnings in the first quarter and is now focused on conserving its cash, as are its supermajor peers. Shell, another of the oil supermajors, has also acknowledged the possibility that oil demand may have peaked in sharp contrast with its assertion earlier in the year that oil demand will increase for the remainder of this decade. Item 2. In mid-May, London Mayor Sadiq Khan announced plans to ban cars from the City of London, a business district in the central part of Greater London, as part of a plan to transform central London into one of the largest car-free zones in any capital city in the world. In order to allow people to maintain social distancing while returning to work, some streets will be restricted to walking and cycling only, while others will be limited. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.